Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Hip Hop Anonymous, the show that's not really anything about hip hop at all, but more so about exploring conspiracy theories, discussing philosophies, and so much more. I'm your host, Dean Martian, as always. Um, so I really don't want to talk too much in this little intro here because this is the first second part to an episode that I've ever done before. Uh, I don't want to keep anybody waiting. The last time we talked about trauma and addiction, understanding, first of all, what is trauma and addiction? Where does addiction come from? Why do we believe the things that we believe about drugs? Why do we stigmatize? Then we talked about uh, the brain, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and how they're kind of like Manolo and Scarface and they, they battle each other. And this is the thing that goes on inside your mind to keep you feeling safe and rational every day. And that's kind of where we left off. We talked about Ted Williams and how his dick game is basically on point. <laughs> you got to go back. I don't think that you have to listen to this episode second. You don't got to go back to understand what I'm about to tell you, but it would be probably a lot more fun for you. So you can listen to this one now and go back or go back and then listen to this one, whatever you'd like to do. I'm sure either way, the experience will be fine. So without further ado, listen to this shit. Peace, bitch. All right, all right. So all the talk about trauma and the brain and it's doing this and doing that and feel good chemicals and the inability to make them and that driving an addiction. We talked about all that. And now let's talk about how people get traumatized. And and again, I think this is going to be a, a little bit controversial to some people um, because we've done a good job as a culture of raising awareness about mental illnesses via hashtags and social posts and videos and content media etc um, but that shit just scratches the surface of the problem like it doesn't really convey how the roots of our trauma in the first place leads to these troubling lives and how we can stop this in the first place or how our society might contribute to it even and based on studies that I just discussed, we see how and based on like all the stuff we just talked about prior to this, we can see how trauma leaves a lasting impression on the human mind, uh, you know, adults and children alike. Trauma that occurs during the developmental years, though, from 15 to seven, 15 months to seven years old specifically are the most significant because it's the time that we establish our worldview. And I used to know what that meant. I used to think I didn't know anything about politics or the world or how it worked at all by the age of seven but obviously that's not what worldview means worldview of course means how you feel about the world around you do you trust people do you apply the right amount of concern to daily challenges based on their level of importance or difficulty like do you cry over spilled milk again everybody has these triggers there's a the way i would define a trigger from the research uh, so far as a moment at which your prefrontal cortex becomes unable to stop the amygdala from sensing threats and stress. And when a healthy brain perceives a threat or challenge, the amygdala will notice the threat is, if it's real, the heart rate will continue to increase, the pupils dilate, blood pressure goes up, adrenaline runs through the veins until the threat is gone, and then the prefrontal cortex you know, has just been waiting on standby to jump in and then it'll finally say, 
you know, everything's going to be okay and calm down hormones or the, you know, stopping of the, of the stress hormones will, will be over. Then once the threat's gone and you start to calm back down, the prefrontal cortex will be like, all right, it's cool. You can chill. Everything's all right. So if you grew up in a stressful environment, though, and we kind of already talked a little bit about this more, but I'm going to go more in depth. The part of your brain that tells you to calm down doesn't grow to be strong enough as an adult to intervene in these stressful situations that you might encounter in life. This allows your amygdala to go on a rampage, sending all sorts of panic button signals to your adrenal glands, etc., to release stress hormones in an attempt to make you feel secure and safe again. It's the Scarface thing that I mentioned. So after, if you remember the Scarface movie, again, I hate to keep referencing it, not really because it's dope, but um, what does Tony do in an effort to soothe himself when he gets upset? After even killing his best friend, he puts his face in a mound of cocaine. That's what. Why? Simple. I said it already. But I'm going to use another analogy to get the point across. So take the spilled milk thing. You pour yourself a tall glass of milk, almond, soy, or, you know, what have you. And as you leave the kitchen um, with a glass in your hand, you think a PB&J would go great with this. So in a rush, you set the glass down too close to the edge of the counter. The glass starts to slip over the edge and you see it slipping before, you know, you even your, your, your hand leaves the glass. But it's too late because you're thirsting for the peanut butter super hard and you started reaching for the cabinet door and your amygdala starts to sense the danger like, oh, shit, your prefrontal cortex steps aside and allows your prefrontal cortex steps to the side for a second and allows the request for a milk's glass worth of adrenaline to, you know, pump through your veins so that uh, you can get a quick superhuman boost the speed necessary to catch the glass before it breaks and you know all over the floor or so you thought that anyway actually the milk now is all over your socks you got to clean up this glass a normal person gets pissed and says shit and then the prefrontal cortex says it's okay no big deal just relax and then you clean everything up a person affected by trauma might get really really pissed and maybe even have a fit they might storm off and leave the glass of milk on the floor while they're screaming obscenities or crying it roots back to feelings that they had a disappointment it might bring up all these things like you know what i can't do shit right i'm a fucking loser my mom or dad was right or bullies or whoever and they might like punch a wall and you go light a joint take a swig from the bottle take it out on their family something to release the feelings of of stress that they feel so most parents will hear that and they'll say "Woo, people act like that when their parents fuck them up at least i'm not traumatizing my kids then because i'm a good parent i don't i don't do traumatizing things i don't i don't do detrimental shit to my kids don't don't be too sure because we tend to think of trauma as like sexual abuse or you you fucking caught a body in front of your kid shot someone in the face you know or you're beating the shit out of your kids you know just whooping them and those things yeah will all you know traumatize a kid but it's a lot easier to do damage than even that you don't even gotta it's a lot easier to damage a kid than you think and again it's all chemical there's this chemical called oxytocin that is released in both parents and children as they form bonds of love from one another oxytocin is the love drug oxytocin is the love drug or hormone when humans love someone or something they seeing them touching them hearing their voice etc it triggers a burst uh, a burst of oxytocin it feels good when it's released and it's essential 
for building the bond between parents and their kids. If the child feels stressed at all or for long periods of time, the release of oxytocin becomes inhibited by these stress hormones and the child actually will be unable to feel connected to the parents on like a on a deep emotional level. And this, you know, this is like when you see teenagers, you know, acting out, rebelling, doing crazy shit, not telling, like telling things, having lots of secrets. It's because they, somewhere along the line, this oxytocin chain was weakened or broken. And this leads me to what I call the top four things that you're doing to damage your child and might not even know it. So we'll start with the least uh, detrimental and to the most. So four, crying it out. I believe that crying, making like, I believe that practicing uh, cry it out as a form of early childhood kind of discipline is actually one of the most common and, and most acceptable forms of childhood neglect that has become very commonplace. I would even call this the gateway to a stressed mind state for a child. The cry it out method is something that parents are told to do in order to basically get sleep and return to their normal lives in like this society. It's it's also to not quote unquote spoil the child. If you're not familiar with crying it out, it's basically leaving your baby in a room, in a crib, alone to sleep. And if the baby starts to cry for the parents, you're not supposed to pick it up and soothe it. The idea is being that picking them up and soothing them when they get, you know, a little bit upset all the time is is bad and and it, you want to make your child more dependent and less afraid to be on their own as they get older so you let them cry it out but the thing that we don't really realize think about what crying is on a basic essential common sense biological pure animal instinct level babies cry because they're stressed right and it's a built-in biological signal meant for the parents to give the baby attention in the form of picking it up and saying shh hush baby and pet like rocking it and making it feel better and we somehow translate that to spoiling but it's not it's a, it's a, it's it needs something it's a it's it wants to be held even if that it maybe you don't want milk or anything at all maybe it just wants to feel secure so this is telling the brain that's still forming this is not a safe environment if i can sit here crying all day and no one's fucking picking me up the access to stress relief your parents it's not fucking coming the, the baby's mind and nervous system will stay in this stressful state until the baby is soothed you know kids start to develop for abandonment issues from this type of behavior and treatment because it technically is a form of abandonment from a biological perspective so when you think about it and say it out loud it sounds really obvious like i shouldn't leave my baby in a room to sleep alone at any time crying means my baby needs something or doesn't feel comfortable i should hold them close to me pregnant women um, even begin to lactate sometimes when they hear babies cry just out of pure maternal instinct soothing the crying child releases oxytocin for the parents and the children so you pick your baby up instead of letting it cry it out that's another tiny block in the uh the the wall of oxytocin the, a link in the chain of the oxytocinal bond is that does that shit make sense so uh the third thing is verbal abuse i mean it's in the fucking word yelling at your kids again same thing name calling belittling nagging like it triggers a stress response children begin to internalize negative comments as truths um, to say stop being stupid or you're being a crybaby 
these are incredibly damaging to a child's self-image and their self-esteem and i'd say verbal abuse i'll put it under the category of uh, I'll put another thing under that category would be like not allowing children to express themselves, right? Or say things like say how they feel. Like, uh, why did you do what you did? If that's the, the parent asking a question to a kid and the kid's like, I did it because and then the parents like, shut the fuck up. Don't talk to me. And it's like, well, you just asked me a question. I, children should be able to say I feel mad or something happened to me or um, I don't know why I did something or if they feel that their parents are doing something wrong, they should be able to challenge, you know, the authority and like have a conversation about it on the inability to do like all these things. If you're getting abused, belittled, uh, ignored, neglected, being suppressed and how you think this is all fucking perfect recipe to grow up in not know who you are to follow the the crowd when you get older in high school do drugs because other kids are doing drugs join gangs because other kids are joining gangs because other people whoever whoever's paying attention to you and not verbally abusing you that's who you're gonna probably try to emulate whoever whatever feels good in the acceptance that you didn't get at home that's where you're gonna seek elsewhere so number two uh, grounding the corner silent treatment or isolation is a form of punishment when you're grounding um, when children are isolated from people they get comfort from they feel abandoned again they they become subconsciously ingrained with the idea that there is something wrong with them or that love is a foundationally conditional exchange right quid pro quo exchange it it's a it's a you know tit for tat thing and that if you want to be loved by somebody you're only worth it if you do what they asked you to do isolation is really just saying you know i don't love you right now because you made a mistake you do that you say i you'll be worthy again of love when you stop making mistakes and it's meant to induce shame as a punishment and now you grow up and you need validation you need to overachieve you later on in relationships you may think that you need to fulfill the desire of a toxic person in order to keep their love and feeling uh, feelings of being noticed so and number one spanking again when you say it out loud i should inflict pain upon my child for uh, by hitting them with my hand or an object like a belt or a switch it sounds like it sounds fucking weird right when you hit your kids you're triggering a response similar to what happens during like cry it out the amygdala immediately says i'm unsafe here but it's even more so uh, because the amygdala the, the aspect of pain like your amygdala immediately is like i'm unsafe like and someone's doing this against my will right so your home should never even have feelings like that uh there you know what i mean you, your home should feel like a place where nothing like that's ever going to happen where you can explore and make mistakes and learn and like let your guard down and this inevitably shortens the child's ability to sort out conflicts in the long run they may become easily angered and confrontational when confronted with adversity long term they still develop a state of hypervigilance and anxiety as well on top of that and then trying to shrink themselves as much as possible so that they reduce the likelihood of confrontations with 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 other people so essentially it turns people into cowards and yes men later in life and we'll talk more about how to deal with uh, children better according to dr gabor mate and uh, for now i'm just astonished at how little it actually takes to traumatize a child and in a developing mind it's basically nothing persistence of even minor stressors in a child's life could lead to addictions in the future with an overactive amygdala it's easily 
uh, that's easily triggered and a prefrontal cortex that does not have the backbone or the strength to calm you down, you have to self-medicate. And that's the point of all of this, really. It's the crux of the entire discussion. When people have trauma, they aren't equipped to deal with, like with even the smallest distressors, the amygdala makes them perceive the stress as more threatening than it actually is. It won't shut off. It's just a glass of milk to some people, but to you, it's a symbol, a totem of all the terrible things that you experienced in your life. And it, it's, it's hardwired into your uh, into your nervous system and into your brain. So unless you can release feel good chemicals to calm down naturally, your brain will never send the signal to calm down. Self-medicating is the easiest remedy for pain. According to Dr. Gabor Mate, being higher intoxicated is the only way to feel loved is what it boils down to. Love makes it sound so hippie and bohemian, but what is love but a feeling of be, like being seen, heard, valued, and feeling safe? We see from the research that I talked about already that adults also show also show brain changes from accidents, cancer, near-death experiences, uh, abuse too. But developing the mind in a state of trauma, though, it's different. Internalizing the responses to trauma seems much harder to avoid if uh, you're already fucked up from childhood you know what i'm saying so with that being said let's move forward getting closer to the end here not till we listen to another story about addiction but this one is a little different this one's fucking crazy it's a perfect example of addiction and the the power that it has over people who are trying to feel love uh let's get it All right, all right. So all the talk about trauma and the brain and it's doing this and doing that and feel good chemicals and the inability to make them and that driving an addiction. We've talked about all that. And now let's talk about how people get traumatized. And and again, I think this is going to be a, a little bit controversial to some people um, because we've done a good job as a culture of raising awareness about mental illnesses via hashtags and social posts and videos and content media etc um, but that shit just scratches the surface of the problem like it doesn't really convey how the roots of our trauma in the first place leads to these troubling lives and how we can stop this in the first place or how our society might contribute to it even and based on studies that I just discussed, we see how, and based on like all the stuff we just talked about prior to this, we can see how trauma leaves a lasting impression on the human mind, uh, you know, adults and children alike. Trauma that occurs during the developmental years, though, from 15 to seven, 15 months to seven years old specifically are the most significant because it's the time that we establish our worldview. And I used to know what that meant. I used to think, I didn't know anything about politics or the world or how it worked at all by the age of seven but obviously that's not what worldview means worldview of course means how you feel about the world around you do you trust people do you apply the right amount of concern to daily challenges based on their level of importance or difficulty like do you cry over spilled milk again everybody has these triggers there's a the way i would define a trigger from the research uh, so far as a moment at which your prefrontal cortex becomes unable to stop the amygdala from sensing threats and stress. And when a healthy brain perceives a threat or challenge, the amygdala will notice the threat is 
if it's real, the heart rate will continue to increase, the pupils dilate, blood pressure goes up, adrenaline runs through the veins until the threat is gone, and then the prefrontal cortex, you know, has just been waiting on standby to jump in, and then it'll finally say, you know, everything's going to be okay, and calm down hormones, or the, you know, stopping of the, of the stress hormones will, will be over. Then once the threat's gone, and you start to calm back down, the prefrontal cortex will be like, all right, it's cool, you can chill, everything's all right. So if you grew up in a stressful environment, though, and we kind of already talked a little bit about this more, but I'm going to go more in depth, the part of your brain that tells you to calm down doesn't grow to be strong enough as an adult to intervene in these stressful situations that you might encounter in life. This allows your amygdala to go on a rampage, sending all sorts of panic button signals to your adrenal glands, etc., to release stress hormones in an attempt to make you feel secure and safe again. It's the Scarface thing that I mentioned. So after, if you remember the Scarface movie, again, I hate to keep referencing it, not really because it's dope, but um, what does Tony do? in an effort to soothe himself when he gets upset. After even killing his best friend, he puts his face in a mound of cocaine. That's what, why? Simple, I said it already, but I'm gonna use another analogy to get the point across. So take the spilled milk thing, you pour yourself a tall glass of milk, almond, soy, or you know, what have you. And as you leave the kitchen um, with a glass in your hand, you think a PB&J would go great with this. So in a rush, you set the glass down too close to the edge of the counter, the glass starts to slip over the edge, and you see it slipping before, you know, you even, your, your, your hand leaves the glass, but it's too late because you're thirsting for the peanut butter super hard, and you start reaching for the cabinet door, and your amygdala starts to sense the danger, like, oh shit, your prefrontal cortex steps aside and allows, your prefrontal cortex steps to the side for a second and allows the request for a milk's glass worth of adrenaline to, you know, pump through your veins so that uh, you can get a quick superhuman boost of speed necessary to catch the glass before it breaks and, you know, all over the floor. Or so you thought that anyway. Actually, the milk now is all over your socks. You got to clean up this glass. A normal person gets pissed and says, shit. And then the prefrontal cortex says, it's okay, no big deal, just relax. And then you clean everything up. A person affected by trauma might get really, really pissed and maybe even have a fit. They might storm off and leave the glass of milk on the floor while they're screaming obscenities or crying. It roots back to feelings that they had a disappointment. It might bring up all these things like, you know what? I can't do shit right. I'm a fucking loser. My mom or dad was right or bullies or whoever. And they might like punch a wall and you go light a joint take a swig from the bottle take it out on their family something to release the feelings of of stress that they feel so most parents will hear that and they'll say "Woof, people act like that when their parents fuck them up at least i'm not traumatizing my kids then because i'm a good parent i don't i don't do traumatizing th- i don't i don't do detrimental shit to my kids don't don't be too sure because we tend to think of trauma as like sexual abuse or you you fucking caught a body in front of your kid shot someone in the face you know or you're beating the shit out of your kids you know just whooping them and those things yeah will all you know traumatize a kid but it's a lot easier to do damage than even that you don't even gotta it's a lot easier to damage a kid than you think and again it's all chemical there's this chemical called oxytocin that is released in both parents and children as they form bonds of love from one another oxytocin is the love drug 
Oxytocin is the love drug or hormone. When humans love someone or something, they seeing them, touching them, hearing their voice, etc., it triggers a burst, uh, a burst of oxytocin. It feels good when it's released, and it's essential for building the bond between parents and their kids. If the child feels stressed at all or for long periods of time, the release of oxytocin becomes inhibited by these stress hormones and the child actually will be unable to feel connected to the parents on like a on a deep emotional level and this you know this is like when you see teenagers you know acting out rebelling doing crazy shit not telling like telling things having lots of secrets it's because they somewhere along the line this oxytocin chain was weakened or broken and this leads me to what i call the top four things that you're doing to damage your child and might not even know it. So we'll start with the least uh, detrimental and to the most. So four, crying it out. I believe that crying, making like, I believe that practicing uh, cry it out as a form of early childhood kind of discipline is actually one of the most common and, and most acceptable forms of childhood neglect that has become very commonplace. I would even call this the gateway to a stressed mind state for a child. The cry it out method is something that parents are told to do in order to basically get sleep and return to their normal lives in like this society. It's it's also to not quote unquote spoil the child. If you're not familiar with crying it out, it's basically leaving your baby in a room, in a crib, alone to sleep. And if the baby starts to cry for the parents, you're not supposed to pick it up and soothe it. The idea is being that picking them up and soothing them when they get, you know, a little bit upset all the time is is bad. And and it, you want to make your child more dependent and less afraid to be on their own as they get older. So you let them cry it out. But the thing that we don't really realize, think about what crying is on a basic, essential, common sense, biological, pure animal instinct level. Babies cry because they're stressed, right? And it's a built-in biological signal meant for the parents to give the baby attention in the form of picking it up and saying, shh, hush, baby, and pet, like rocking it and making it feel better. And we somehow translate that to spoiling, but it's not. It's a, it's a, it's it needs something. It's a, it's it wants to be held even if that it, maybe you don't want milk or anything at all. Maybe it just wants to feel secure. So this is telling the brain that's still forming. This is not a safe environment. If I can sit here crying all day and no one's fucking picking me up, the access to stress relief, your parents, it's not fucking coming. The, the baby's mind and nervous system will stay in this stressful state until the baby is soothed. You know, kids start to develop for abandonment issues from this type of behavior and treatment because it technically is a form of abandonment from a biological perspective. So when you think about it and say it out loud, it sounds really obvious. Like I shouldn't leave my baby in a room to sleep alone at any time. Crying means my baby needs something or doesn't feel comfortable. I should hold them close to me. Pregnant women um, even begin to lactate sometimes when they hear babies cry just out of pure maternal instinct soothing the crying child releases oxytocin for the parents and the children so you pick your baby up instead of letting it cry it out that's another tiny block in the uh the the wall of oxytocin the, a link in the chain of the oxytocinal bond does that does that shit make sense so uh the third thing is verbal abuse i mean 
it's in the fucking word yelling at your kids again same thing name calling belittling nagging like it triggers a stress response children begin to internalize negative comments as truths um, to say stop being stupid or you're being a crybaby these are incredibly damaging to a child's self-image and their self-esteem and i'd say verbal abuse i'll put it under the category of uh, I'll put another thing under that category would be like not allowing children to express themselves, right? Or say things like say how they feel. Like, uh, why did you do what you did? If that's the, the parent asking a question to a kid and the kid's like, I did it because and then the parents like, shut the fuck up. Don't talk to me. And it's like, well, you just asked me a question. I, uh, children should be able to say I feel mad or something happened to me or um, I don't know why I did something or if they feel that their parents are doing something wrong, they should be able to challenge, you know, the authority and like have a conversation about it on the inability to do like all these things. If you're getting abused, belittled, uh, ignored, neglected, being suppressed and how you think this is all fucking perfect recipe to grow up in not know who you are to follow the the crowd when you get older in high school do drugs because other kids are doing drugs join gangs because other kids are joining gangs because other people whoever whoever's paying attention to you and not verbally abusing you that's who you're gonna probably try to emulate whoever whatever feels good in the acceptance that you didn't get at home that's where you're gonna seek elsewhere so number two uh, grounding the corner silent treatment or isolation is a form of punishment when you're grounding um, when children are isolated from people they get comfort from they feel abandoned again they they become subconsciously ingrained with the idea that there is something wrong with them or that love is a foundationally conditional exchange right quid pro quo exchange it it's a it's a you know tit for tat thing and that if you want to be loved by somebody you're only worth it if you do what they asked you to do isolation is really just saying you know i don't love you right now because you made a mistake you do that you say i you'll be worthy again of love when you stop making mistakes and it's meant to induce shame as a punishment and now you grow up you need validation you need to overachieve you later on in relationships you may think that you need to fulfill the desire of a toxic person in order to keep their love and feeling uh, feelings of being noticed so and number one spanking again when you say it out loud i should inflict pain upon my child for uh, by hitting them with my hand or an object like a belt or a switch it sounds like it sounds fucking weird right when you hit your kids you're triggering a response similar to what happens during like cry it out the amygdala immediately says i'm unsafe here but it's even more so uh, because the amygdala the, the aspect of pain like your amygdala immediately is like i'm unsafe like and someone's doing this against my will right so your home should never even have feelings like that uh there you know what i mean you, your home should feel like a place where nothing like that's ever going to happen where you can explore and make mistakes and learn and like let your guard down and this inevitably shortens the child's ability to sort out conflicts in the long run they may become easily angered and confrontational when confronted with adversity long term they still develop a state of hypervigilance and anxiety as well on top of that and then trying to shrink themselves as much as possible so that they reduce the likelihood of confrontations with 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 other people so essentially it turns people into cowards and yes men later in life and we'll talk more about how to deal with uh, children better according to dr gabor mate 
And for now, I'm just astonished at how little it actually takes to traumatize a child and then the developing mind. It's basically nothing. Persistence of even minor stressors in a child's life could lead to addictions in the future. With an overactive amygdala, it's easily uh, that's easily triggered and a prefrontal cortex that does not have the backbone or the strength to calm you down, you have to self-medicate. And that's the point of all of this, really. It's the crux of the entire discussion. When people have trauma, they aren't equipped to deal with, like with even the smallest distressors, the amygdala makes them perceive the stress as more threatening than it actually is. It won't shut off. It's just a glass of milk to some people, but to you, it's a symbol, a totem of all the terrible things that you experienced in your life. And it, it's, it's hardwired into your, uh, into your nervous system and into your brain. So unless you can release feel-good chemicals to calm down naturally, your brain will never send the signal to calm down. Self-medicating is the easiest remedy for pain. According to Dr. Gabor Mate, being high or intoxicated is the only way to feel loved, is what it boils down to. Love makes it sound so hippie and bohemian, but what is love but a feeling of like being seen, heard, valued, and feeling safe? We see from the research that I talked about already that adults also show also show brain changes from accidents, cancer, near-death experiences, uh, abuse too. But developing the mind in a state of trauma, though, it's different. Internalizing the responses to trauma seems much harder to avoid if uh, you're already fucked up from childhood. You know what I'm saying? So with that being said, let's move forward. Getting closer to the end here. Not till we listen to another story about addiction, but this one is a little different. This one's fucking crazy. It's a perfect example of addiction and the, the power that it has over people who are trying to feel love. Uh, let's get it. So how do we fix any of this at all? How do we fix it once it's happened? How do we stop it from happening? How do we stop traumatizing others? And how do we heal ourselves? First, let's start with the most vulnerable group in society. Um, and also the easiest group to help children start with a, you know, a good foundation. And that seems to be the path of least resistance, right? Nipping at the predisposition for drug use. If you're a parent and you're listening to this, I hope you don't just brush it off because there's a lot of things that we can do to make our our children feel loved noticed and, and cared form those healthy bonds and relationships that can uh, make someone you know learn how to deal with this world so one of them is co-sleeping with your with your children your babies um i already talked about the cry it out method and how it triggers stress responses in infants and this reduces oxytocin which is basically the chemical responsible for emotional bonding this chemical bond leads to feelings of being seen heard safe basically loved and if this chemical bond begins to deficit at a young age we see emotional detachment from the parents and later feelings of insecurity in the world so a way to combat this is to co-sleep with your kid look back at ancient tribe and even ones that still exist today like they keep their infants close to them at all times because carrying them on their chest or their back we call them primitive people but they know to trust and go with their biological urges to attach to their children at least 
And I talked about this a little bit back in episode three of the podcast, that the societies that are most free of anxiety, trauma, and the like exist in ways that we would laugh at in the West. But researchers who lived with them noticed the children's behavior. They weren't shy or timid little kids. They roamed villages freely, going from hut to hut with no restrictions. They're confident. They aren't told to fear other adults. They aren't told to go to sleep by themselves because their parents have to go to work in the morning. Children exist next to their parents at all times in very early ages, during work and every other aspect of daily life. If the parents aren't around, other women and men in the village treat the child like their own until their parents come back. And this has tremendous effects on their self-awareness, their self-esteem and mental health. When kids grow up in a nurturing environment, they quickly develop and feel confident. And the parents themselves, they're probably raised in a similar way. And you look at them and they're very kind of stable, even-tempered people. They're kind, they're well-mannered, they're focused. They, 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 they have patience to sit and think in silence. They don't feel insecure. And they, uh, they seem to have peace and often with very little in the ways of material possessions. When you see how they are with their children and think of the ways that we leave our kids crying in a, in a room alone, it's really strange and even unsettling to kind of think about. Of course it scares a child to be alone or you know, trying to be molded into an, this independent figure when you're not ready. They don't have the capability to be selfish or spoiled, but they're being treated as if they do. They've literally just come out of the fucking stargate from the ethereal realm, <laughs> you know, out of the vagina and from the other side and they're in the physical dimension now and they don't know anything they're cold they're 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 scared they're tired their senses aren't even fully working yet and they were just inside of another human being to to be inside of a person for nine months and like even if only you know three or four of them your mind can actually like sense and perceive that to go from that to a crib with a mattress made of non-living material. It has to be like jarring and disorienting for a baby. That's just on pure logic for me. But so anyway, you see parents and babies co-sleeping together. You can see the intention of co-sleep. The baby constantly scoots closer to their mother. Like while they're asleep, they find the mom. They, if they lose contact during the night, the baby finds its way back because this time's crucial for bonding and the release of uh, uh, and the release of oxytocin. To feel safe and watched over during sleep provides immense amounts of positive reinforcement to a child's mind. So the other thing would be like talking gently, taking into consideration, you know, children's feelings. They really, they're people too. Yelling or isolation as punishment works in the short term, but inevitably it's a selfish and lazy reaction to a child who's being, you know, unruly. Again, we have the baseline level of contempt for children being loud and crazy in this country but we forget that this is how these little fucking monsters learn like you told little bobby to stop asking for cookies because he's not allowed to have them till after dinner but then you know you know and you're mad because he's acting this way but you forget the first time he ever even had a cookie was last week sugar and chocolate they taste great and they light up the pleasure centers of your mind in ways like nothing else can sugar is literally addictive so he starts to cry for the cookie of course and instead of Instead of telling him that he's a brat, you know, or telling him to go to his room, this is a perfect opportunity to teach patience and and and, and relaxation and moderation and, and, you know, all that stuff. Corporal punishment it was is another thing. It doesn't help. 
uh, we like the easy route sometimes, especially here in America, because we don't have time to do shit. So like exercise, no thanks. Put a fucking pill in my mouth that makes me skinny. Uh, same thing with parenting. It takes time and energy to talk to your child and let them have fits and acknowledge and, va- and validate their emotions. But when kids act up, it's a lot easier to just spank them and tell them to shut the fuck up. It's it's easy way to get the quiet that you need to have your own peace of mind. Hitting your kids, though, is just as emotionally damaging as all the other thing, but it offers pain and elicits an immediate powerful stress response. You don't want to do that. So again, talking to your kids and explain, explaining why shit's wrong is very helpful. Kids need love. The love needs to be unconditional is basically what it, this all boils down to, or it doesn't work. We feel that there has to be reinforcement of rules and authority, or the kids are just going to go crazy and run all over us. It's going to turn into the Lord of the Flies. But... That's a viewpoint coming from a place of limited understanding or from a stressful environment itself. If you want your kids to feel like they can tell you everything when times are tough, if you want their trust, fear is never going to work. You have to, you know, elicit a response of respect. You have to be able to look at things that they do from a different perspective. Like we feel like they're willfully disobeying a lot of times or just being bad, right? But those are not real feelings that's your perception of their behavior right you ask them not to get a cookie they got a cookie anyway therefore that equals disrespect but no you choose to internalize that action as disrespect yourself as a parent from a child you're projecting that yourself but to feel disrespected isn't even emotion anyway you can't feel disrespected in the words of dr gabor mate again you can only feel hungry sleepy tired cold hot you know you feel angry and you choose that um you choose to use that anger to feel disrespected instead of saying to yourself i love my child my child loves me neither of us would intentionally hurt one another as a parent i feel angry but the child is still learning self-control they can barely help themselves how can i guide them to that understanding and if we can find the time to listen validate and teach the likelihood of our children becoming depressed uh anxious homeless mentally ill addicted it decreases dramatically and for the adults same thing kind of goes for you know adults who are suffering from addiction or trauma realize that the addiction or stress is not about you meaning it's not your fault people that are addicted are that way because of the circumstances that they had to endure it's not a reflection of your worth or your ability to overcome tough times or even your long-term goals. Addiction's rooted in internalized shame. So if the person is someone you care about or yourself, understand the addiction isn't about selfishness, poor intelligence, or anything but pain. When you grow up being separated from your parents for large periods of time, being verbally abused or beaten, your ability to respond to stress is hugely diminished. Addicts are often labeled as being irresponsible, and they are, but I think we use it in the improper context, much like we use the word ignorant. Irresponsible means unable to respond, and that's exactly the problem. The way the healthy mind operates without stress is with help from natural chemicals, like I said. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins all play very important roles in the way that we function. Dopamine motivates you to go after your goals. When you complete a task that's a little bit tough, you feel good afterwards. That's thanks to dopamine. 
And making your bed in the morning starts your day with a sense of accomplishment because you're tired, you don't want to do anything, you get up, you make your bed, and when you get that rush of dopamine from accomplishing something, it amplifies your will to do more things. And then you have serotonin, which is a mood stabilizer, and you get that from going on walks and being outside in the sun. Endorphins are painkillers, and they're released when you laugh, work out, or you have sex. And speaking of sex, you get oxytocin from physical contact with loved ones, partners, or friends. All of these chemicals integrate into your daily life when your brain is healthy. And there's a way that you can use these things to function properly like everybody else does. But when you're accustomed to the stress signals from trauma, uh, your ability to release these chemicals, again, is diminished. It's not like you're choosing, it's happening to you. And that's why you see mentally ill, depressed individuals doing the exact opposite of the things that I just mentioned. Not only do you not feel motivated to even make the bed because your amygdala's, you wake up, you're just fucking stressed. There's no reward from doing it even if you can like make yourself do those things. You don't feel like doing any of the activities that are gonna stabilize your mood with serotonin either, going outside in the sun or whatever. You never ease the pain. Uh, that you might have emotional or physical by releasing endorphins with laughter because you just don't feel like laughing. You isolate probably if you're depressed and you're feeling bad, you're in the house all the time, so you're not socializing, therefore no oxytocin. And the cycle just continues to repeat. So how do we heal? Uh, as adults, you know, I'm gonna do a bit of reiterating, but overall it's like the same things in general that we do for children. That's what adults need too, that are gonna help prevent and ease the ailments that drive addictive and compulsive behaviors for adults in your life or yourself what do you gain from addiction uh what do you gain from addictive behavior why do you feel uh what do you what ways do you feel when you're sober that you would like to stop feeling when people start to talk listen and try to see from their point of view when you're you know trying to listen and get their point of view keep in mind also in their responses that no matter what addiction seems to come from trauma Addiction, just like a child crying, is the attempt to solve suffering. Kids who never developed an ability to self-soothe with, you know, like we talked about a lot earlier, often turn to behaviors to soothe themselves later. We heal our trauma with compassion for ourselves and other people. We have to see ourselves as others. Uh, like I get upset with the homeless addicts who roam the parking lots of the grocery stores that I go to sometimes and I try to avoid them. And it's not because they're bad, but I feel bad that I can't help. I don't even carry cash anymore to give anybody. So I think, why don't these motherfuckers get cash app? But then I'm like, well, you know, how hard would it be to get access to a phone with internet all the time? How much would it cost? You probably still need a bank to, you know, use cash app. If you do have money, you know, people are like, they're just gonna use it for drugs or booze. Um, but why wouldn't they? Of course they would. The emotional pain and isolation involved in a life of homelessness, I'd probably want to be high too. We have to start thinking in ways from other people's positions. Being able to treat people in this way, give them love that's unconditional. The same way that drugs does. On a good day, a bad day, no matter what, you do the drugs that, you know, that you're used to doing, they feel the same way. We have to give love that's like, crack and when you start to do that you'll start to heal you'll start to think of yourself in different ways self-awareness is the thing that needs to be developed this is referred to as consciousness or knowledge itself 
knowing who you are and where you come from. I know that I'm addicted right now or I had trouble with addiction in the past or whatever, but I'm still worthy of love because I know that I wasn't treated the way I was treated or went through the things that I went through because God hates me or my parents hate me or whatever. It's just because it happens. It's the way the world is. That's not a reflection of my worth. And often people have trouble doing this because we have, you know, we live in victimhood, the mindset that's retained from victimization. Victimization, of course, being the actual events that fucked you up in the first place. And they probably happened a long time ago, but they stick around. This trauma is a way of keeping you in these moments. So, you know, your, your growth is suspended. It's stopped. How you see these events is really the only way that you can control yourself as an addict or, uh, or a distressed child. Your perception can affect how you feel about situations. And that's the only thing that you can change. And that, that will override your brain's automatic functions. You say to yourself, I feel stressed because I dropped the milk. But you know what? It's just fucking milk. It's going to be fine. It's hard to do, but that's what we have to do um, because this helps us develop a sense of uh, response ability, not responsibility. Like I put on a suit and I pay my bills, but your ability to respond to life as it currently is in this right in the now and being that way all the time or as much as possible. So there's ways that you can start to do this. Number one would be if you're struggling with addiction, I would say seek professional help or ask somebody Number two is do things that make you love and care for yourself more. Increase your discipline. You know, make the bed, wash each dish as you use it, work out, remind yourself on a daily basis that you're capable of loving yourself and that everything that you're doing is for your long-term health. It'll help. Uh, three, find your triggers. These are going to be the things that make you feel stressed. Use affirmation in times of need and say, you know, I only feel the way that I feel now because I'm looking at things as worse than they are you know, or something like that. And I'm, or something like I was unsafe at one point in my life, but that was the past. I'm in control of my space and my being now. I'm an adult. I'm safe. I can choose to not be afraid anymore. Number four, meditation. This is an easy one. You just slow down, close your eyes, breathe. It brings awareness. You're going to want to, um, you know, just breathe and feel the awareness from the top of your head to your toes, long, slow, deep breaths in and mindful slow exhales out and this brings your awareness to the present moment calms you down the amygdala stops being hyper and looking for trouble and you do this every day for like what was it 56 60 56 days or something in a row and scientists literally see changes in the structure of your brain you begin to repair and reform damaged parts of your brain and your nervous system that have been affected by trauma there's tons of apps out there too that can help a free one that i use is called insight timer uh, it's an Android app, but I think it's for Apple too. We also have um, number five, stepping out of your comfort zone with healthy stress inducing activities. It helps reform your brain. You know, if you can control a stressful environment and calm yourself down while you're in it, um, then your body will begin to respond differently to stress. Martial arts um, is one thing that I love, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in particular. Uh, it's a stress. It's a stressful sport in in a sense that you have to be comfortable with grappling in close close quarters with opponents. You know, trying to trip them, throw them, and wrestle them. At the same time that you're doing that, you're trying to strategize and remember drilled exercises, and then submit that opponent with a choke or a joint lock. It's a lot like chess. It requires a lot of thinking under pressure and sometimes underneath like the literal body weight of another person. 
And that person can even be bigger than you sometimes. And in these moments, if you can find relaxation and breath and think of what to do, you're, you're healing your brain right there in that moment. And number six, um, you thought I'd forget about therapy, right? I didn't. And this is a great um, way to work through past experiences. Therapy for sure is awesome. ER, EMDR therapy in particular uh, is a therapy that I, I tried. Um, it's like a holistic style of therapy. It's uh, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization therapy. And it's basically involved in bilateral stimulation, like um, talking and working through traumatic experiences. You know, your doctor might ask you questions and at that time you might be forced to like look at a, a light that goes left to right. And this distracts your amygdala enough for you to process uh, things that you experience that normally stress you out. And this shit is actually, it's becoming more popular. It's something that was developed, I think, largely in the mid-90s. And it's it's actually a, an amazing technique. Um, a lot of Buddhist uh, and Qigong, I think, meditation practices are rooted in like looking left to right or moving your eyes so that uh, you can distract your brain enough um, to take you, to keep you in the present moment. Um, how do you know if you've suffered from trauma at all take the ace quiz if you want to know it's just uh, a 10 question quiz to evaluate your experiences at home that you had before the age of 18 and the questions are simple yes or no questions and the questions are like did your parents or guardians ever call you names or physically hit you and did you feel sad and if yes that's one point point. and the more points that you get by the end of this quiz the more likely that you suffered from or that you do suffer from health or social problems. So I got a score, I got a five. And here's what they said about my score. With an ACE score of four or more, things start getting serious. The likelihood of chronic pulmonary lung disease increases by 390%. Hepatitis, 240%. Depression, 460%. Suicide, 1220%. So, yeah, I mean... Well, <laughs> pretty fucked up but you could see how like legitimate places are taking like mental health trauma and, and all this so if you want to you know hear that you're fucked up or not put a i'll put a link for the uh i'll put a link for the test in the episode description and with that let's finish up this episode that somebody was able to get something from this episode. But in the end, it's a pretty bleak conclusion, kind of lying underneath everything. And like, why is there so much prevalence of addiction and trauma and mental illness in the world in the first place? Why are so many families fucked up, etc.? Really, the, you know, at the heart of it, our social structures and institutions are a large contributor to the pain and disconnect we feel from strangers and loved ones at astonishing rates. I mean, like, I feel like when adults have time and energy to spare, it's much easier to give the right amount of love to their kids if they don't constantly feel like they have to be at work or doing something to make money in order to survive. It's easier to be patient with your kids in a circumstance like that. But when you're broke and struggling to make ends meet, it's much harder to exhibit mindfulness. Parents are affected by stress and they pass it on to the children. But keeping the economy going kind of seems to be uh, treated as more important than making sure that families and people are happy. 
Not co-sleeping is really only needed for maintaining a sleep schedule so that you can go to a job. You can't, you feel like you'll be disturbed by a child being close to you too often. So we, we neglect them so that we can continue to pay our bills. Then there is like little quality time when they actually start school because they're with strangers all day. So we have no bonds with our children. These children grow up to be addicted, stressed out, uh, have anxiety, homeless, traumatized. You, you, you grow up traumatized and then you continue being traumatized or you grow up nurtured but indifferent to the struggles of the world and then you grow up and continue to raise kids like that. So the truth is it's hard to even really produce well-rounded children in today's world. Don't beat yourself up too much. If you, you spank your kids and yell at your kids, you should stop doing it. But I understand in a lot of ways those are also addictions and coping mechanisms to make you feel better. To yell, to hit, to scream, to be aggressive, to get your way. You just don't want to have to explain. You don't have the energy to deal with your kids or your addicted relative or friend, you know. Especially if you have little money. If you have lots of money from your job, though, you'll never even be home. So the only way is to almost live in a way that they've been trying to stop us from doing this entire time. They they built this civilized, quote unquote, society and they want people here. We have to live in natural ways, though. Somehow we have to find a way to get more or everything that we need by our own means in a way that we can live on our own without disrupting the natural rhythms that were meant to help us uh, raise children better and be happier. We let them cry in cribs so that we can get to the office early and we hurt them when we leave in the morning and we traumatize them when we send them kicking and screaming onto a school bus in the first place where they won't have contact with people that make them comfortable for a large portion of the day. Black people also seem to be a great example of generational trauma, you know, uh, out of control, you know. I, I think it's taboo to say that um, because there's some noticeable problems in the black community like crime, poverty, violence, whatever. But poverty is an aspect of all this that affects both black and white people, you know, in similar ways. But you don't see a lot of like trailer communities and shit having the types of neighborhoods that Chicago does on the south side. I get that argument and there's definitely some nuance to it, but even so, seeing how trauma at early childhood affects the brain, corporal punishment leads to anxiety and paranoia. This leads to problems with emotional regulation, impulse control, inability to focus and form social connections and more. So you take a look at black families, the descendants of severely oppressed, beaten and enslaved people, uh, all the horrible things happen to these folks. And people always say, well, you're not a slave. You were never a slave. Nobody alive that was a slave or nobody alive that's black was a slave. And it's like, you don't have to be like we have our ancestors traits still being passed on to us from generations and generations. I mean, what people don't realize is that slavery didn't end when the you know, when it was declared over. Like, what do you think happened to the minds of the people who were slaves, like people who were, you know, at best made to be subservient to an entire class of people who regularly inferred that they were better than you in every way. At worst, it was, you know, whipping, rape, and watching your children be sold or uh, being a child being sold. And you think of those people, you know, how they became free and were expected, I guess, to just jump into normal, stable, you know, home lives where they spoke gently to their children and responded appropriately to stress. No, of course not. 
they did the only thing that their programmed minds and amygdala prefrontal cortex would allow. Like when children disobeyed, they would tell them to pick a switch from the yard so that they could beat them with it, weaken in their minds, their overall sense of self and connection to their parents. Those kids have kids and by now their brains just look they look like their parents' brains and they have no choice or a nearly impossible one but to beat their kids and treat them the way that they're treated and and maybe they defy it mainly because they were severely be- beaten but maybe then it still comes out their frustration their feelings that are from the trauma can't be escaped so maybe now their abuse comes out as mental or verbal and you know this is kind of the concept the the religious concept of sins of the father you can't escape these things so really we just have to take into consideration again that we're all human we all suffer and we need to understand where each other is coming from even in small ways this information uh the information from this episode was researched by me dean martian with additional help from uh the saint misha t uh i use notes from the course healing trauma and addiction by gabor mate i also use various sources on the internet uh yeah if you want to talk about this episode do you have opinions thoughts on the matter do you beat your kids do you think hitting your kids is okay do you think trauma is or do you think addiction is a choice or isn't a choice anything at all that you feel about this episode go ahead and uh, send me an email my email address is dean at dean x martian or you can go to martianartsllc.com or deanxmartian.com and you can send me an email from the contact form about the show Um, and that's it i'm done with this one i'm tired of reading uh peace bitch all right all right so um full disclosure i know i just said everything about sympathy and all this uh philanthropic not philanthropic but uh altruistic uh uh, high uh, and falutin position that i'm taking on homelessness and addiction and all this stuff i got a funny kind of story so i'm going to a speedway to go like buy whatever the fuck you buy at a speedway and it's the summertime it's like probably a few months ago and i'm like i park my car i get out of the car and I see legs sticking out from behind like this pillar, like a column, like brick column that's holding up like the overhand, overhang the, the eave of the building. I guess that's what it would be called. And it's clearly like a guy laying there. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's like a homeless dude. He's like laying in the mulch beside the entrance of the speedway. So I'm like, I'm going to go help this motherfucker out real quick. So I walk up to him and I'm approaching him and as I approach him, I start talking before, like, I really get a good look at him. And I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And he kind of perks his head up for a second. It's like dark-skinned dude. He's got dreads. He's laying down on the mulch, of like, in front of a speedway on the ground. And I, he looks at me, and as I look down at him, he's wearing, like, all black. And uh, he's got a fucking giant Rambo knife, like, in his hand, like, clutched his chest like he's laying there he's on the phone i think he's got this knife on at his chest on his chest he's like a young he might be younger than me he's probably like 28 29 and um and i have a dollar out extended towards him already and i'm like hey man what's up i just wanted to give this to you and he takes it from me and he's like thank you and he looks at it he's like hold up he's like hey man i don't need no motherfucking dollar man he's like i'm selling weed 
And I was just like, oh, okay, all right, then. And then I got the fuck out of there because I was like, I'm not about to get stabbed in a fucking speedway for trying to do something nice for somebody. So I guess the point of this story is have love and compassion for everybody, but uh, don't get fucking stabbed either. (laughs) All right. That's all.